0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with sports performance manager at Catapult and co author of Triphasic Training, Ben Peterson. Hi, guys. Welcome to episode 48 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, as I've said, this is part two of a two part episode with Ben Peterson. So, as I mentioned in part one, today's episode is focused around triphasic training. So, today we discuss French contrast training, which uh, Cal and Ben talk about extensively in Triphasic Training, the book. We also discuss the oscillatory method, uh, another method which maybe isn't. Um, highly used but is is talked about extensively in the book so it's a really great episode with ben and if you haven't checked out triphasic training there's a link to the book on pacingperformance.co.uk forward slash 48 there's also the downloadable free manual which has been put out maybe maybe a year ago now and that's the high school triphasic training method so you can grab that again at pacingperformance.co.uk forward slash 48 So as with part one with Ben Peterson, part two is also sponsored by Train With Push. So for all listeners of the podcast, Train With Push have given a discount code for all listeners to get 10% off if you're a US listener or 10 pounds off if you are a UK listener. So if you're a US listener, go to trainwithpush.com, put in the code PaceyPerform10 in the redeem code box, and that will get you the, the discount. If you are a UK listener, go to Strength and Conditioning Education forward slash Push. Fill in a few uh, few boxes, and then on the re- redeem code box again, put Pacey Perform 10, and that will get you 10 pounds off a Push Band. So in this introduction, I just want to talk very briefly about the coaches portal that comes with the Push Band so I think you get a 14-day trial of the coaches portal and I think then it's a, a monthly subscription something like $10 a month and from there you can use the, the data that's collected by the push band and you can um, download all that data to an Excel file so that makes it really easy to, um, to analyze. You can also do multiple athletes so all you'll have to do if you're doing Uh, if you're in in a session with using the pushband with multiple guys is just change the login so if you've already created a username for each athlete you just switch between the two then when you come to download the, 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 the data you can just switch between the two athletes and download each athlete each time so the reason I say that is just I had a couple of questions from a couple of guys just regarding how easy it is to get hold of that data so you can analyse it on the back end So part two coming up with Ben Peterson, Uh, enjoy the episode and I will speak to you soon. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we have episode uh, part two of the episode of Ben Peterson, uh, who is the sports performance manager at Catapult and the co-author of Triphasic Training. So in the first part, so I'd encourage you to check the first part out, um, which involved uh, a chat about about GPS and catapult. So in part two, we're going to discuss all things triphasic training. So just before we get going, I just want Ben to firstly thank Ben for his time and secondly ask him to do a little bit of a, a background um, on his education and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast again, Ben.
1: Hey, thanks, Rob, thanks for having me. Um, really enjoyed doing the last podcast. It was a lot of fun. Um, hopefully generated some good discussion, so hopefully we, uh, lightning can strike twice here. <laughs> but a uh, little bit of background about me. Uh, I'm currently the sports performance manager at Catapults. Um, love what I do there, working with teams and, and with data. Um, before that, I did my uh, graduate work, my master's, and my PhD in exercise physiology at the University of Minnesota um and when i was there that's where i i worked with cal Dietz um quite extensively so that's actually where uh the, the book triphasic training came from um and i'm sure we'll get into that in more detail here shortly um and, and prior to that i did my undergraduate work out at uh, northwestern university which is a, a uni here out in chicago in the u.s so um Really, kind of enjoy the journey so far, but really enjoying too uh, what I'm doing now, and and just continuing to learn and and meet new people. It's just just like what this podcast is meant to do.
0: Cool. So, do you want to get into the um, into how Triphasic Training came about, how the you know how the methodology developed, um, and you know why did you feel it was um, appropriate to write the book and get the get the methodology out there?
1: Sure. Yeah, this would, um, this would be great. You should compare what I'm about to say to what Cal said. I'm sure it's very, very different. Um, well, as far as like triphasic training itself, the methodology, um, that's, that's Cal's baby. Um, Cal developed triphasic training, um, you know, long before I showed up at Minnesota. Um, and really that just goes to, um, testament to Cal being a bookworm and just, constantly trying to push the envelope and find better ways to do things um something i respect the hell out of him for um so my first exposure to triphasic training was when i showed up um, on campus and met him and and was his graduate assistant for a year and a half um and and was blown away by it you know i put myself through the program and and then started working with the athletes and doing it and uh i just knew from my own performance standpoint um how much better I felt I was performing doing certain things and how much I wish I had done some of that stuff when I was in high school and in college. So, um, how, so that's how the methodology came about. But as far as the book, the book literally was, uh, Cal and I are sitting around and Cal had been joking with me for forever that we should write a book like, Hey Ben, let's write a book. Let's write a book. And I'm sitting there going, I really don't want to write a book. I've got to write all these essays and term papers for school. Like, why should I write this book? And, you know, at the same time, you know, Cal and I, in our wildest dreams, never, never thought that the book would be as successful as it's been and been received so well by so many people. Um, that still blows me away. I'm very humbled by that. So how Cal finally got me, he's like, he's like, hey, Ben, I tell you what, how about we just write a training manual, like a 70-page training manual? I'm like, all right, well, let's just do that. And he knew, he knew that as soon as I started doing something on it, that it wasn't going to be a 70 page training manual. So the 70 page training manual that was supposed to take us three months turned out to be this 360 page book that took us a little over a year, uh, to compile and put together. Um, and it just about killed us a lot of times too. Like it, it's funny to look back now. Um, but in hindsight, it was a great experience. I learned, I learned a ton. I mean, it's great. I always, I always advocate for anyone, write your own book. I know it's easy for me to sit here and say that, but you really should, if for no other reason, even if you don't publish it, because when you have to sit there, it forces you to think out all of, you know, your thought process, the methodology behind it. Why do you put stuff in there? And then you have to physically type it out and justify all those points and present it in a story format. And whatever you write your book about is going to make you 10 times better about that material for your own personal well-being. Um, so I, I would always tell someone to do that. So, um, yeah. long story short, it <clears throat> took us a year to to throw it together and, and collaborating back and forth with Cal and writing and then putting the programs together and then testing stuff with athletes and then trying to make them go. Um, it was a long process. But, but, again, Cal and I are constantly just blown away by how many people find value in the book and, um, you know, buy the book and, and go through stuff. So, again, very humbled by that.
0: So do you know how many couples you've sold so far?
1: Um. Yeah. Well, we don't know an official number, but honestly, I think by this point we're somewhere north of about seventy five hundred copies have been sold.
0: Wow. And there was a. And there was so, a, Were you involved in you? Were obviously involved in the um, the free manual that came out not long ago.
1: Yeah. The high so school? I didn't have a lot of. Yeah, the high school model. So that was um, Cal, and then um, another one his graduate assistants there now, Matt Van Dyke, who's another really smart guy um, we're able to pull together a lot of the components that we had put in the first book and kind of put together that manual, which has been great too, you know, cause it's, it's hard to hit everybody right with one book in the terms of, um, it's not specific to every population, right? Same thing as data, like we were talking about in the catapult podcast. Um, so, uh, the high school manual was great. I mean, you know, Cal and I've been talking too about now going back and actually doing like a manual for, for each sport, you know, for football, for hockey, for different ones, because there's different things that um, he and I would both do. Cal especially in the weight room. Um, from that perspective, there's some things that he's, you know, evolved the process and stuff that he's modified. Even now, since we came out with the book, Cal's been about three, no, more than that, four years ago now.
0: So, mm. cool. I'm sure people would love that. One for every sport. Yeah. Bit more work for you. So that's- that's maybe more maybe more than a year's maybe more than a year's work
1: yeah right exactly yeah we'll we'll see how uh yeah once again yeah let's right a 10 page manual turn into a 100 page something so we'll see how many can i survive
0: yeah yeah um so you just want to give us a bit of um bit more in depth with regards to the methodology and the kind of science behind it
1: sure um so the basics of triphasic training so there's three parts right so um Uh, basically breaking down muscle muscle action. So in a dynamic sport, team sport, any type of dynamic movement, there's, there's three components. You have the eccentric component um, or the muscle lengthening or loading component. You have the isometric component, which is where you uh, perform an ISO. So there's, there's no, there's no muscle movement itself, but you have, you know, a certain amount of tension that's developed. Then you have the concentric or the force producing aspect of the muscle action. Um, and those three components are, are each very important for their own individual perspective, but it's kind of, a, one has to build on the other. So case in point, you're never going to produce more force concentrically than you can withstand eccentrically, right? If you think about it, you can't, you can't decelerate, you know, 500 pounds, but then create a thousand pounds. It doesn't quite work like that. So. Um, cal's really great insight was is he's like well, what happens if i just broke these down into individual components and really focused training blocks on each of them um, and build them up as we go so the goal is to work dynamically and explosively but spend a block of time um, you know two to four weeks working and focusing on eccentric muscle action then you spend the second block working on isometric muscle action, and then the third is the concentric, which is kind of the culmination of, of the previous two, and helping the athlete then teach his muscle structure to not only withstand the force but then reproduce it as explosive as possible. So trying to maximize um, your, your rate of force production while decreasing the amount of time it takes you to produce that force, which is really the key in any team sport, right? The, team, the person that can go in and out of a cut faster will always beat the other player.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so how does that um, across time? How does the percentage of one RM lifted in the main exercises differ?
1: Yeah, so there's really not a difference in the weight in terms of one RM. So how how we found works the best is to use like an undulated block model. Okay. So within the week, so let's say we're going to work on our eccentric phase, the first part. Um, we're going to go heavy. So all the loads are going to be 85% or 80% or above. Okay. So we're working strength and um, power development. Um, the first, the first day of the week, we're doing like a three day lower body workout. Uh, the first phase is going to be, you know, um, you know, like 85 to 90%. Um, the day two, your heaviest day is going to be 90% plus, and your third day, which would kind of be more your volume day, will be, you know, 80 to 85%. And the exercises, we just take variations, different types of squat, single leg, double leg, um, and then couple those with explosive movements uh, through a French contrast method um, to kind of maximize how you do that. So then if you would progress as we take the, the eccentric component, you might do those lifts. Like, let's say you do 85% load on a back squat, but you're going to um, lower that load eccentrically over a period of six seconds and then, you know, have someone assist you back up um, you might do three or four reps of that. And you're going to do three or four sets. Then as you progress to the isometric phase, now that we've built that level of eccentric strength, you're going to keep the same amount of load on the bar, but instead of lowering down, you know, six seconds slowly, you're going to try and pull yourself down. You're going to try and accelerate down into that low squat position and try to stop the weight as fast as possible, and then hold that isometric for three to four seconds. Again, teaching the the neurological system of the muscle to fire, right? There's, you need muscle tissue, and you need to build muscle to be strong, but at the same time, you really have to have a well-coordinated nervous system to coordinate how those muscles fire and the rate at which they can produce force, and that's what you're trying to train in this aspect. So pull it down, hold it for four seconds, and then have someone help you back up. Then you progress to the third phase. Again, you have 85% on the bar, but now it's a full dynamic movement. You're trying to pull yourself down, you hit that floor, you slam on that isometric, you hit that break, and as soon as you slam on the brake, you try and re-accelerate the bar uh, up again as fast as possible. So now again, you've worked to build up all three components of that dynamic action, which then we try to transfer over to the field with some more sport-specific movements.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned there, French contrast training. Do you just want to give us a bit more of an insight into exactly what that is and how you use it?
1: Yeah, so French contrast training is a great combination of kind of like a plyometric system. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was created by a guy named Giles Cunet, who was a Frenchman. Uh, But it's basically incorporating heavy lifting and and, then weighted non-inflammatory plyometrics. And again, we're just trying to work the nerve system. So, um, we set up in triphasic training. Let's say, um, you're eccentric. So, you're heavy set, three eccentrics and back away. As soon as you're done, um, the bioregion says that now you have, you know, a potentiation window, right? Where you have only stimulated the muscle. It's now very subject to new stimuli. So, we'll go right in from the eccentric muscle squat right into, um, like, a plyometric so like a hurdle jump, so we'll jump four high hurdles, focusing on the vertical weight of force development, not looking at right out the distance, we'll do the vertical. From there you go right over, we'll do a, a weighted plyometric jump. So normally we'll take uh, like a hex bar, because um, the jump mechanics are similar, we'll try and take uh, two hex bar, you'll maybe have 20% load out of what the RM would be. Uh, we'll do four plyometric jumps, very explosive jumps. Um, and then from that, they'll go over and they will do an accelerated plyometric. So we'll strap bands up into the ceiling of the weight facility, um, nice and high. It's like a 15 foot ceiling. Um, and they guys will put the bands underneath their arms. And then they will do four-bar explosive jumps. The bands help accelerate them out of the hole. Um, so basically, it's like overspeed jumping. So people use overspeed running. They'll run downhill or, or pull yourself to try and get those tanks to go. Same thing applies. With with the over speed jumping, and once you through all of that, we'll take a long break. You know, four or five minutes off to really let the nervous system and everything recover, and then you'll go back and you'll do it again. And athletes will go through four, three or four sets of that.
0: So, how would you? So, if you if you're in a gym without that facility to do the the kind of over speed um, plyometrics that you would at the end, what alternatives is there if you're kind of stuck in a gym with I don't know twenty meter turf
1: yeah, right. so there's two things I've done. One is you just go and do another plyometric. um, uh, whatever that is, some type of a cool thing. You can do like a one, uh, a single leg plyometric that kind of launches you like a step up to a jump. Um, something you can do a little more speed on. The other one to try, um, depending on how, how comfortable you're your athletes is, I've done buddy jumps before where, you know, the person squats down, you've got the buddy behind them, just holding their hips, and they just do a vertical jump and you just kind of, help accelerate them a little bit okay um don't go of them you don't have to throw them unless they're really small you get really fling them, but to <laughs> kind of get any little type of help you can just to get a little bit better over speed um but i did a little careful if that one to make sure each other
0: mm-hmm. cool so in the in the book you go it, there's, there's quite a big section on being the, the kind of importance of um muscle relaxation and then you introduce something towards the end, um, the oscillatory methods that people may not have um, come across before. Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about why they, what they are, and why they're in there?
1: Yeah. Um, so oscillatory method, uh, we stumbled across a lot of stuff that looked at the difference between great athletes and amazing athletes. So gold medalists and you know bronze medalists it wasn't their ability to produce force; it was their ability to. Con- to um, relax their muscle in between contractions. So again, right, so if you're going to um, pull something eccentrically down, it's, it's kind of a stretch or a relaxation almost of the muscle before you can concentrically produce force. And that's going to be the difference. So Cal had this great idea of coming up with oscillatory movements. And an oscillatory really is just it's forcing the athlete to work both the concentric and the eccentric aspect of the muscle. So you're going to go like on a bench press. It'll be a fairly light bench. You know, we'll have maybe 20 to 40% of their one RM onto the bench press and you have someone help hold them down on the bench. so They don't go flying around, but their goal then is to, to pull the bar eccentrically down to their chest as fast as possible. And then isometrically stop the bar. Don't let them bounce it off their chest and then re concentrically apply force and fling it up as fast as possible. And, they'll do as many of those um, reps as they can in a time frame. So instead of giving people uh, a rep count when they did this, Cal figured out it was much more effective to give them a time parameter. So like how many reps can you get in five seconds? And the reason we did that was it created an absolute competitive environment in the gym because we ask someone to do something as fast as possible, right? After about the second set, they're tired. They're, it's easy to look like you're going fast without giving 100 percent effort. So we just turned that on its head and we said, "All right, you're going to do three sets, as many reps as you can get in five seconds." Well, now if the guy just went and got 10 reps in five seconds, you're trying to get at least 10 or 11 because you don't want to walk, walk walk around the weight room and have this guy give you crap for the rest of the day because he just dominated you in the bench press. So got those competitive juices flowing a little bit, and it made sure that for us, from a physiology perspective, we were trying to get the fastest rate of contraction eccentrically and consequently that they could possibly produce in that time frame so um that's kind of the rationale behind it and it, it seems to help a lot too I, you know i've gone through it a couple of times um just from a former athlete perspective i think once i go through the whole system the triphasic and then the oscillatory part at the end um uh, i definitely think it, it helps me kind of move through stuff faster than i normally would
0: so, so, what kind of um, level of athlete would use that oscillator method?
1: Yeah, um, you know, definitely more advanced collegiate guys. Um, I probably wouldn't do it yet with a high school group. You could if they're if they're more advanced, you know, more mature level. You know, again, I always go by training age more so than biological age in a weight room. Um, you'd probably want guys though. You know, if at least a, a training age of three or four before you really got into the oscillatory stuff, assuming they've had two or three really good years of training before that. Um, Yeah, that'd probably be the main section. And then, but for the triphasic part, the triphasic I think is almost good to start as, as early as possible. If for no other reason, because breaking down those components like that is a really good excuse to work on technique and form and teaching the athlete to, you know, to really understand mechanically, all right, where should I be going? you know, in this movement, like on a back squat, if you're telling them to do a six-second eccentric lowering of the bar, you can really help them and give them good cues mechanically about where should their hips be, how should their hips be moving, where should the upper back be, you know, don't arch your neck, you know, don't start the upward movement with your hip, you know, all that different stuff.
0: So I've seen on um, Cal's YouTube channel, which is, Unbelievable, by the way. Um, so many great videos on there. Um the the kind of oscillatory method um split into two. So the kind of the top half of the, especially like a bench press, the top half of the movement and the bottom half of the movement, what's the what's the difference and and why would you isolate certain parts of that movement and for what reason?
1: Right, great question. So, you know, if you ever sit back and actually look at um so, so like in hockey, right? When when calves and all that stuff, it's hockey. Very few times do you have a guy where he's going to have to like put his arms like a bench press and check someone or bounce someone off where they're, you know, at the full eccentric position where their elbows are all the way down, their hockey sticks like down by their chest. A lot of the time, you know, they're creating that force from, you know, already half extension, just going out to meet the opponent. So I really came out of the idea of just, hey, well, let's split it, because really, if you broke it down at the smallest level, those are two different. Neurological explosions. If you're telling the muscle to create force from, you know, uh, one angle versus the other. And we know that from a lot of research, just looking at things like rack pulls, right? Like you might have an absolute beast that can pull, you know, a thousand pounds from mid-side. But if you drop the bar down two inches, right, you're still basically the same pattern, but that two inches lower, all of a sudden now it, it alters the, the neurological movement, which muscles firing. And all of a sudden now, you know, he struggles to pull 600. So, uh, the rationale between that was just to split it, so we're basically getting both stimuli. One's much more sport specific The other one is there more so for continued just overall strength development if we wanted to go back then and transfer this to a normal bench press.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. So you mentioned the, um, the time sets, um, obviously with the oscillatory method. Would you use time sets for anything else uh, apart from that specific um, method?
1: Uh, we've played around with it. Um, I think it works best for the oscillatory method. Um it also works good though for drop offs. Anytime you want to up intensity, you know, if even if it's so um like let's say if you want to make sure someone does a certain work rate until they drop off, well maybe you do their first set of the day on back squat and they have five seconds to get as many reps as they can at, you know, seventy percent of their max load, working on like power or something, and maybe they get six reps in five seconds. So it's a good way then to quantitatively, like let's say you don't have a tendo unit or something like that to measure bar velocity. If you want to say, all right, instead of doing four sets of whatever or four sets to a drop off, now I can say you can do sets every two minutes until you hit less than five reps in five seconds. Because by that point, right, they would have had a 15% decrease in performance. And I don't want to trash them. I don't want to lift them until they have you know, a 30% decrease in performance. Now that might be hard for them to recover to by the next day when I need them to do something else. So this way it kind of gives you specific ways to track each guy. Um, you know, maybe one guy was up all night studying for a test or probably more likely was up all night drinking beer.
0: So <laughs> I was going to say that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just what college is, right?
0: Yeah. So, exactly.
1: Maybe she's supposed to do four sets. Everyone's supposed to do four but maybe he comes in and he's neurologically trashed. So after three sets, he's done. But I have another guy who um, you know, did what he was supposed to, was in bed by ten o'clock, took his ZMA, did everything he was supposed to do, and came in, and he ripped out five. So if I had come in and I told the guys to everyone to do four sets, I would have overtrained one guy by a set and I would have undertrained the other guy. By using time parameters, it kind of gives me a good pulse to make sure I'm giving the proper training stimulus to each guy on a given day. Mm-hmm.
0: So if I did have, a, if it did have a, um, a 10W unit or a gym aware or whatever, what, what kind of percentage would you, would you be looking at um, as a drop-off? Like he's mentioned the 15%. Um, what, what percentage would you be looking at?
1: Yeah, it kind of depends on what I'm going to have them do the next day or the day after. But okay. normally, um, normally you know, 5 to 7% drop-off would be as far as I would go on a leg thing um, if I wanted them to come back again within 48 hours and perform at a high level. If we're getting closer to um, things like competition, like I know Cal, Cal also works with track and field guys a lot. So throwers that have to go out and, you know, pop stuff, but it's important for them to continue to lift during the season to maintain that strength ratio. So he'll squat them heavy, but he'll use a tendo unit just to make sure that their drop off isn't below like two and a half percent of their one RM or what their best velocity is. Um, Just to make sure they come in, they hit that neural quality and they're done. It's just purely there to train the neural aspect. There's nothing about it to be physiologic.
0: Okay, cool. Um, so another thing that that differs um, with your method is with the triphasic method is the is the sport squat. You just want to talk to us a little bit about what the sport squat is and why that's been introduced um, over a kind of traditional like um, Olympic squat. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> so I think the one thing that people should know is that um, we don't ever completely replace the Olympic squat with the sports squat, which I think a lot of people have thought before, and they're like, oh, well, you never go low. That's not true at all. During the early phases of the training program, when we're going very heavy, we always advocate a more like Olympic-style full squat because you get your best adaptation that way um, and your best strength gains. That said, again, though, as we get closer and closer to the season, we always try and make things more and more sports specific. And again, you go back to a sport like hockey or track and field, you're very rarely ever producing force out of that deep squat position. But there's a lot of time where you're producing force out of that squat position where you're at like 30 to 40 degrees of flexion, um, at the knee. So that's where, uh, as we get closer, we just simply, we, we put them into that close that that more sport specific squat pattern. Um, when we're at the lighter loads, higher rates of velocity, um, again, just to try and get again, that neural quality used to producing force, from a joint angle, that it will typically produce that force from during competition.
0: Okay, cool. Um, so, last but not least, um, one thing that kind of came into my mind when I was um, reading the book was how it how it translates to to more um, like team sport environment that's got a shorter preseason and a longer preseason and a longer in season. Sorry, how would the triphasic method kind of fit into that um, that environment?
1: Right. Nope. Great question. So ways you can kind of shorten it up. Um, the two most important qualities to train. And I think Cal will agree. I mean, this from everything we've seen is the eccentric and the isometric. Um, so if you're short on time, a- Sorry, Rob, are you there?
0: I'm there. I'm here.
1: Sorry about that. It's all right. Um, so to answer your question, um, Again, the eccentric and the isometric are are the two most important out of the three. Now, why I say the two most important because you'll still get the concentric version if you're kind of doing more explosive movements later on. So to shorten it up, if you don't have a long off season to do all that, um, basically what you would do is you get rid of the concentric block at the end. So you do your eccentric and your isometric block, and you can go as short as two weeks on each of those and get a pretty good adaptation. Um, and then go right into kind of more of the high velocity peaking stuff and, um, get as sport specific, as fast as you can. So then what that does is it shortens up the off season training block from 12 weeks down to about six. You can push it with five if you really had to. Um, and then what we found is when you're doing your preseason, you know, your extended preseason, like I know, like AFL and Australia and stuff will have a very long preseason, right? Is you just out about every third week. You have to retouch, you know, that eccentric and the isometric stimulus. So let's really just pick your battles. Find the times where um, you can afford to be maybe not at your best for the next twenty-four hours, because we can't be at our best all the time, right? And just accept that. All right, that's going to be the time where we're going to do that training stimulus.
0: Okay, very interesting. So uh, just coming to the end of uh, end of things. Um, so, where can people? Uh, obviously, the book is the, is the main thing so people can uh, get an insight into the, the method itself. Um, but where can people keep in touch with you and what you've got going on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, go buy the book. Um, <laughs> shameless plug. I, I won't even try and hide that. But um, but hopefully, again, you get something out of it. Um, and again, we've Keon and I have been amazed at the number of people who have um, read it already and, and seem to use aspects of it, um, for different aspects of their training, which has been great. Um, as far as me, um, you can probably get hold of me. The easiest way I like to interact with people now is on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is at Ben underscore J underscore Peterson. Um, so I, I've really started to love to interact with people on that. And kind of like I said on the last one is I travel around for work, um, a lot, especially in the U S so I always like to, you know, when I'm in certain cities or stuff, you know, tweet out if anybody's around or something. If I have downtime, I, I love to just go grab a cup of coffee and see what people are up to, see uh, share some stories and see what they're doing with their athletes and the different methodologies they apply and, and what success they've had with it. Um, and then the other way you can hold me is email, um, just peterson at gmail.com.
0: Cool. So just, just one last thing, just you mentioned that about going around to different people's gyms and see what they're doing. Is there anyone that's kind of taken the triphasic method and, and added things in that you guys have? Uh, it's kind of um, you know lit a fire in your brain for something another project that may come up.
1: Oh man, I mean yeah, I mean we're um, we're always amazed at the emails we get. You know, the first of all the results people get always blows us away. You know, people email us, you know, I added 50, 60 pounds to this person's back squat, or you know, decreased this person's sprint time by whatever. Um, those are always great to see and always kind of giving us different ways to apply it. Um, Cal and I right now are throwing around the idea of, um, triphasic number two, which would kind of focus on the GPP aspects so stuff leading up to triphasic training. So your general preparatory phase and how you can kind of prep as good as possible to kind of incorporate that and getting the most bang from your buck throughout the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as specific people, I can't even come up with any specific ones. There have been so many that have gone through and just um, tweaked little things, which is the cool part. I mean, I don't think anyone really takes the program, cookie cutter, how we have it set up in the book and just applies it. Um, I think everyone that was able to read the book and find, you know, the one or two things that 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 can fit in their current system and that, that they think can make a big difference. And it seems to be working for a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I'm sure it is. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, again, thanks for your time. And, um, I'll put a link on the site to all the, all the links that you've mentioned in the episode and part one as well, um, as well as a, a link to, to grab the book and the, um, the free manual for, uh, triphasic training for high school athletes, which is, uh, which is great. So again, thanks for your time and, um, we'll keep in touch.
1: Awesome. Well, Rob, thank you again for having me on. Um, I really enjoy your podcast. I listen to it all the time. I think it's a great tool for guys. And I think what you're doing is great. Just uh, try and connect all these great smart coaches from around the globe and just kind of stimulating conversation. So thanks again for having me on.
0: I really appreciate that. Thanks, mate. All right. Cheers. See you, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 48 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Ben. Don't forget to get to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 48 and all the links mentioned in this episode will be on there. You can also check out all the previous episodes of the podcast at pastyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. You can like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter and leave a rating and a review on iTunes, which should be really appreciated. I hope you enjoy the chat with Ben and I will speak to you in episode 49.